morning. So kindergarten through second graders can just kind of make themselves comfortable. All the children's church rooms are full of VBF stuff and don't have any space to do it this Sunday. We also need some helpers this summer. If you're interested in helping out one Sunday with children's church, we could use that as well. Um, if, you, if your kids get antsy or wiggly, you can feel free to take them out. It won't bother me. I'll just keep preaching. So do what you need to do. Take care of your family. Luke chapter 23. And today we come to really the climax of the Passion narrative as we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke. We come to chapter 26, to the crucifixion of Christ Himself. And in a sense, we come to the most holy ground of Luke. And the next three Sundays, we'll be looking at the crucifixion story and looking at Christ's final hours there on the cross and just dwelling there and meditating upon what Christ has done for us. And today we're going to look at verses 26 to 34. Let me just read the text. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Totters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. There was a preacher in the mid-20th century. He was a southern preacher. He had a church in Florida, but he preached all over the place. His name was Dr. Angel. And Dr. Angel was preaching in Texas one day, and he was preaching on the topic of forgiveness. And he was telling the congregation, you have to pray for and forgive those who've hurt you. He says, if you do, it will set you free and it will help the other person. You know, it's a win-win situation. And so he went home after the sermon and uh, went to bed that night. And in the hotel room, he gets a phone call in the middle of the night and he answers the phone. And on the other end of the phone is some woman and doesn't know who it is. And she's sobbing and she's distraught. And, and finally she, you know, spits it out. She says, Dr. Angel, I just can't do it. And he doesn't know who this is. He doesn't know, you know what she's, he says, uh, you can't do what? And she says, somebody has used me despicably. And she says, I cannot pray for them. I cannot let it go. And it's killing me. And I'm miserable. And then she hung up the phone. And Dr. Angel says he never found out who it was. And he never found out what had been done to this person to wound them so badly. But it's true, he said, uh, that, that when, if we don't forgive, it, it hurts us. It wounds us. It destroys us. I, I heard somebody say that uh, unforgiveness is like eating rat poison yourself and waiting for the rat to die. 
That's what it does. It destroys us. And yet we still struggle with unforgiveness. We know that we need to forgive. We know as Christians, forgiveness is not optional for Christians, okay? It's not something we can pick and choose. If we're Christians, we are called to forgive. And yet we struggle with it. We struggle with it when people hurt us in so many different ways. If you've ever been deeply wounded by somebody or betrayed or had someone stab you in the back, it's very difficult to forgive. We look at the international scene and we see the retaliation that goes on back and forth, whether it's you look in the news and it's Palestine and Israel or whether it's Russia and Chechnya or whether it's the Shias and the Sunnis. It's like a tennis match, back and forth. This one retaliates against that one for this, which makes that one retaliate back. And so there's a back and forth of retaliations, of attacks and bombings. And you wonder, first of all, who started it all? Uh, But second, more importantly, how could it stop? Could anybody ever just say, you know what, we need to forgive and let go? Because that's what forgiveness means. The Greek word for forgiveness essentially means to let go of something. It means to leave, to let something be, to set something, and just take your hands off of it. And this is what Christ calls us to do. But, but it's hard to forgive. Even in the little things, it's hard to forgive. Sometimes those are the hardest things, those little you know, bitterness and resentment that we like to carry around and to nurse um, my grandpa was a really funny guy. He's, he's deceased now, but uh, he told the best stories. And I think I have my really warped sense of humor from him. I think I've traced it back to him. But I'll tell you, he was so stubborn. He did not like to forgive anything. If you went, if you went to a drugstore and he felt at the drugstore they had cheated him or somehow didn't do what he asked them to do, he would come home and say, I am never going to that drugstore again. And not just that one. He wouldn't go to any in the chain, you know, anywhere. He would just be done with them. And, and we do the same thing. People have a bad experience with somebody or some institution. Sometimes it's the church. They have a bad experience in the church, and so they write off all churches. And they say, I'm not having anything to do with the Lord. I'm done with all of this. And, it's, and they nurse that bitterness because of something bad that happened in one experience. And so I think about the resentment and the unforgiveness that we are so often prone to. And what a stark contrast exists between our unforgiving spirits and the radical generosity and grace of Jesus in this passage. It's as if there's this infinite chasm between the forgiving heart of Jesus and our hearts. Look at what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. They don't realize the magnitude of this evil. So, Father, forgive them. And the forgiving heart of Jesus here is even more amplified. It's even more dramatic when you compare it to the magnitude of the sins that were being perpetrated against Him in that moment. If you really want to realize how, how amazing Jesus' forgiveness is, realize what was being done to them as He was actually forgiving them. It's amazing. You have to take the diamond of Jesus' forgiveness and to really see it sparkle, you have to put it against that black velvet of, of the sins that were being committed against him at the time. And you realize how amazing it is. In fact, let's just do a really quick survey uh, and just go back over the passion narrative and really quickly, uh, quickly highlight the different ways in which Jesus had been sinned against. It really starts in earnest in verse 47 of chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 47, Jesus is arrested. But this is not a public arrest. This is not with 
proper warrants and proper authority. This is a little group of people sneaking in at the middle of the night to capture Jesus. Why? Because they knew it was sleazy. They knew it wasn't right, but they had to do it under the cloak of darkness in order to pull off this corrupt arrest. And then they take Jesus to a secret trial where there's no one there. It's, they take him in, uh, in the middle of the night to the house of the high priest. And there they abuse him. Look at chapter 22, verse 63. It says, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating Him. They blindfolded Him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to Him. This is the grossest form of police brutality. To be arrested on trumped up charges in the middle of the night and to be beaten in the middle of the night without any due process. As if that's not bad enough, though, in the morning they take him to trial and they bring him to Pilate. And what's Pilate's verdict about Jesus? He says he's innocent. Look at chapter 23, verse 4. Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. I can't convict him of anything. What did this guy do? Well, yeah, he claims to be the Messiah, but how is that a crime? That's not a crime for Rome. You've got to let him go free. But the people are insistent. No, he must be punished. He must be put to death. And so uh, Pilate, being the political animal that he is, he sends Jesus off to Herod, who was in charge of Galilee, and when he learns that Jesus is from Galilee originally. And so he sends him to Galilee. And Herod looks at him and talks to him and abuses him and beats him up and ridicules him and still can't find anything wrong, so Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate says to them, look, I can't find anything that this guy has done. And the crowds shout, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 22 of chapter 23, why, what crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. And still they demand his blood. And so Pilate, having publicly proclaimed Jesus' innocence, capitulates to the crowds and has him sentenced to death. What a miscarriage of justice! Has there ever been a miscarriage of justice so great? To have the man in charge who has the authority over life and death say, you are innocent, but you will die anyway. Ah, This is so wrong. And then finally, we come to our story and we see the injustices of Jesus continued. Verse 26 They led him away. They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it before Jesus. At this point, Jesus is physically weakened uh, through blood loss and shock. Typically, what the Romans would do is before they would crucify somebody, they would flog them. They would just rip up their skin, and so they'd be bleeding and they'd be weakened. So here's Jesus. He has the cross beam. When they carried the cross in those days, it was just the horizontal beam. The vertical beams were typically left along the road. And so the person would carry the cross beam to the place of execution. And, and he collapses, and so they press this guy, Simon from Cyrene, into service. So now Jesus is going along. And then in verses 27 to 31, we have this interaction between Jesus and the women. And what this really is, is this again shows the horrific nature of what's being done to Jesus Because Jesus speaks a prophecy of judgment against Jerusalem. Check this out. It says, A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Now, I don't have time to get into this 
text, even though that's a really interesting text. But just to sum it up, essentially what Jesus is doing is he's reiterating his prophecy that God is going to judge Jerusalem and the nation because they've rejected the Messiah. So in other words, this is how bad it is, what they're doing to Jesus. Not only can we, the readers, see it for ourselves, but God can see it. And God looks at this and he says, because of what you're doing to the Messiah, it's so bad that judgment is decreed for Jerusalem and for the whole nation. So God is affirming the wickedness and evil of what's being done to Christ. It's not just our misreading of the story or something. God sees it too. And He says there's going to be judgment. And finally, the evil perpetrated against Christ reaches its climax in the crucifixion itself. Verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified Him along with the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. It's interesting how brief Luke's description of the crucifixion is. You find that in the other Gospels too. You read the other Gospels and they don't linger on the crucifixion. They just kind of state it as a fact he was crucified. And I think there's a reason for that. The reason being that in Greco-Roman culture, it was a social faux pas to talk about crucifixion. Crucifixion was such a grisly, barbaric horrible thing that it would be like really impolite and awkward if you were at a party and you even mentioned the word. Nobody talked about it. The Greeks didn't talk about it and the Jews didn't talk about it because according to Deuteronomy, it says that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so the Jews saw anyone being crucified as a sign of God's curse upon the person. So this was just not a topic. You didn't write about it. You didn't talk about it. And I think that's why Luke just mentions it so briefly. They crucified him and that's enough said. We all know what that means. Now, they knew what it means because they saw it. We don't know so much what it means. Uh, crucifixion, you have to understand, I don't know how to describe it except that it's, it's the most grisly, horrible form of capital punishment ever created by human beings. It's the worst thing human beings have ever thought up as a way to kill another human being. In fact, it was so awful that the Romans only reserved it for the worst elements of society. It was used for slaves. It couldn't be done to a Roman citizen. It was only used for slaves for uh, bandits who tended to be runaway slaves who formed groups of bandits to survive. And it was used for um, uh, insurrectionists, rebels, who tried to overthrow the government. So it was all the people that everyone else in society would say, those are the people at the bottom, those are the only ones who got the ignominy of, of crucifixion. And it was a horrible way to die. It was a very slow death. Because think about it, in crucifixion, none of your vital organs are damaged in crucifixion. So how do you die? Well, a slow process of blood loss, shock, dehydration, exposure to the elements, and gradual asphyxiation. And, and what, what they think is that as a person got weaker and weaker, it became more and more difficult to draw a breath because of the weight of the body and, and just being able to pull yourself up so you could have a breath. And so it slowly, you know, the lungs filled up with fluids and slowly the person asphyxiated. So it's, th think of drowning to death over like 36 hours. That was what crucifixion was. It, was. it was the worst. And not only was it a horrific personal trial, it was also a public display. And, and in an honor-based culture, which many Eastern cultures tend to be, where honor is a very important thing, this was the ultimate dishonor because you were publicly ashamed. You were put on the cross and they were at the place of the skull. We see that in verse 33. They took him to the skull. 
archaeologists and scholars aren't exactly sure where the skull is. There's a couple places around Jerusalem they think it might be. But we know one thing. Wherever it was, it was most likely along a public road because that's where they did crucifixions, were on major streets outside the city so that everybody coming in would say, ooh, that's what happens when you mess with Rome? I ain't going to mess with Rome. It was a way of subjugating the people. It, it was as if Rome was driving a stake in the ground saying, don't mess with us. Don't fool with us. And so it was a, a, a tool of oppression and fear and, and intimidation. So there's Jesus. He's stripped. It says that they divided his clothes. So Jesus is now either completely naked or just in a loincloth, you know, like what we'd call his underwear or something. I mean, totally humiliated. It can't do anything to defend himself, open to the jeers and insults of the people. And so there he was on the cross. Behold the man. Behold the man. And what did he do? Why was he there? Was it because he healed the sick? This was the man who touched lepers. This was the man who embraced the most diseased in the society and healed them. He gave sight to the blind. He fed the hungry. He reached out to those at the very fringes and periphery of society. He went to the bad people, the people who were the most despised by the society because they lived in rebellion against God. Those were where Jesus made a beeline to the tax collectors and sinners. And he would hang out with them and he would teach them God's truth. And one by one, he would win them back to God. One by one. That's where Jesus was. He wasn't like me. You know, I stand in the church and, and we all gather to hear God's word. Jesus went out there. He went to the, you know, wherever the, the bad people hid under their rocks. He lifted up the rocks and went under the rock and he met them and he preached God's word to them that some of them might repent and he could win them back one by one. What, what a guy this was. There's no one like this. This is why even people who aren't Christians and who don't believe Jesus is the Son of God hold Jesus in incredibly high esteem as one of the greatest men in history because he was so great. And look what was done to him. What an injustice. I would argue that we have here in this story, in these pages, the greatest injustice ever committed against a human being in human history. It doesn't get any worse. Who was better and more innocent than Jesus? And yet look what was done to Christ. Who was more honorable than Christ? And what greater dishonor can be done to an honorable man than this? Who gave more life to the world and life to those who are in need, both physically and spiritually? And yet, what a death he had to endure. What an atrocity, a personal holocaust, if you will, against one man, betrayed by a whole nation to the most ignoble and horrific of fates. And how does Jesus respond as he's pinned there, seemingly helpless on the cross? How does he respond? Father, forgive them. You know, I was trying to figure out how to preach this. I don't even know how to preach it. How do you get your mind around this kind of grace? I can't, I can't articulate it. It's so amazing. And he didn't just say, he, it's not just that he forgave them. He prayed for the Father to forgive them. So, you know, he could have been like, oh yeah, I, I personally forgive you, but you know, God's going to get you. <clears throat> no, no. He's like, not only do I personally forgive you, Father God, forgive. 
Father God, I want You to clear these people's names. Jesus taught us. He said, pray for those who mistreat you. And He practiced what He preached. He did it. He prayed for those who were grossly, in almost unspeakable terms, mistreating them. He was focused on their salvation. Even as they were trying to inflict maximum pain on them, He was praying for maximum salvation and forgiveness for His tormentors. What a Savior. Even knowing, in verses 29-31, to 31, that judgment is coming for Jerusalem and for the nation. Knowing that this is certain, prophesying the judgment Himself, He still says, but you know, Father, forgive them. If there's a way you might save some, forgive them. And so we see the, the heart of God beating through Christ on the cross as He offers and pulses out forgiveness and grace to all those who could receive it. It's amazing. And you know, it's so amazing too when I compare the forgiving heart of Jesus to our hearts. Like we were talking about in the beginning, when I think about how unforgiving and resentful and spiteful and how we love to nurse our little grudges and we have our little books with our little injuries done against us that we keep in our back pocket, always ready to pull out and be reminded of who did what to us and when. And and it can be little things. I was telling the, the congregation in the first service, I was driving back from the fireworks on a Wednesday night. I was down in Plymouth with my in-laws and we were coming back. You know, it was rainy that night and, and it was heavy traffic going. I was in the left lane and, you know, you, you couldn't go any faster because the guy in front of you couldn't go any faster. The guy in front of you couldn't go any faster. And, and this guy was behind me and he was just tailgating me. And I was getting so mad. You know, I just, yeah, I, was getting, I was like, oh, what guy got off my back, you know? And he started getting those thoughts like, what if I just jammed on my brakes? What if I just, oh, like, oh that'd be stupid. Kids are in the back. That's right. So, you know, we, we shouldn't do this. So I'm trying to calm myself down and this guy keeps doing it and I'm getting madder and madder. And, and of course, I mean, I, I suppose I could theoretically have pulled to the right but, and let him pass, but, you know, I didn't want to give him the satisfaction. <laughs> so I'm holding my ground because I want to prove a point. And, uh, and finally the guy passes on the right and does the thing where he goes like two cars ahead and squeezes in, you know, whatever. And I, but I remember as he went by, I just I remember that car. And I remembered it. And sure enough, a little further down the road, I passed him on the left. And, and he said, slow down or something. And I, it took everything within me not to just roll down my wife's window and be like, ha 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 ha! This is why I can never watch NASCAR, okay? Because it would be bad for me. Even those little things, those little injuries, those little... You can't... It's so hard to let them go. To just say, you know what? Whatever. I let go. I release. I forgive. And may God forgive you too. And hope you really don't crash, you know? Um, And what about not only the little things where we struggle to forgive. And think of what a great thing Christ forgave. But think about how hard it is to forgive people we love even. I'm just thinking about our incapacity to forgive. Jesus forgave his enemies. He forgave people who hated his guts. We struggle to forgive people that we love dearly. You know, as I was praying over this message, one of the thoughts that came to my mind to, to talk about was how hard it is to even forgive our parents. You know? To forgive your family. You know, when you're a little kid, your parents are awesome. When you're a little kid, your parents, they know everything. They're all-powerful. They're omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Uh, When you're a little kid, you know, mom's kiss on the boo-boo can heal anything. And your dad knows everything. And he's the strongest guy in the world. And then what happens is you get to the high school years. (laughs) And you get into college. You start going, 
wait a minute, what happened to my mom and dad? They're not as, as awesome as they thought. And we begin to see the flaws in our parents. And, and for some of us, that awakening is very painful because you know, some of us had good parents. Some of us really didn't. And those parents, we start to look at their flaws and we're like, how do you forgive this? And then, you know, what's funny is you then have kids yourself. You're like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and, and you do anyway. Uh, and other things too. And you're like, wow, well, someday my kids are going to be sitting around going, hmm, mom and dad really weren't perfect. And, and so it's hard. But, but when it's really a, a disappointing relationship with parents, how do you forgive? How do you forgive parents who were alcoholics? How do you forgive parents who divorce? Or forgiving a, a very angry, controlling, hypercritical parent? Or on the other side, forgiving a parent who was just checked out, detached, and had nothing to do with you? And they didn't want to be involved. How do you forgive a parent who wasn't there? Or a parent who, who gave you up as a child for adoption and you never really even got to sort things out with them? How do you forgive that? You know? Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And every day, today, probably millions of Christians across the globe were praying that prayer in unison in churches, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so, in liturgical style, we recite these words. But do we really mean them? Have we really let go of those things? It's so hard to let go and to release that bitterness and that resentment that's in our hearts. And we say, how do you do it? How do you get there? How do you really forgive the way Jesus forgave here in this text? And as I was wrestling with that question of how we learn to forgive like Christ forgave, it took me full circle back to the cross. And so I started at the cross and I wondered how to do that and it led me back to the cross. Because I realized that this is why I need a Savior too. And so as we come full circle to the cross, we realize Jesus, He didn't just pray for my forgiveness. He paid for my forgiveness. Jesus died on my behalf so that I could be forgiven. Jesus is not just my example of forgiveness. Jesus is my forgiveness. And so the fact that He could forgive me is grounded upon the reality that He died for me. It was the Jesus who died for me that was able to be the Jesus who could pardon me and pray for my pardon. Or think about it this way. Here's another way of getting at the same idea, just kind of from a different angle. Uh, How do you reconcile verses 28 to 31 on the one hand, the judgment on Jerusalem, with with verse 34, Father, forgive them? Jesus utters them both. He utters a passage of judgment and then he does a prayer of forgiveness. How do you put those two things together? It's one of those contradictions or seeming contradictions in the Bible. You know, it's like, is God talking out of both sides of his mouth? What is it? Is he forgiving? Is he forgiving or is he judging? Which one? And and it's very difficult to reconcile some of these things that are in Scripture where it seems that there are these mysteries, these paradoxes. And I don't fully understand God in His ways, and I can't fully understand everything that He is. But one thing I I have noticed over the years is that when I come to these paradoxes, I usually find a reconciliation of them in the cross. That in the cross we have both the, the vertical judgment of God against sin, but also, in a sense, the horizontal forgiveness of God being poured out towards sinners. 
And so at the cross, you have the juncture of seeming paradoxes. And we could go through theological issue after theological issue, and you continue to find them in the cross. And so it was at the cross that the judgment of God was being poured out on Jesus for me so that the mercy of God could flow through Jesus to me. His his death for me is the foundation of His forgiveness for me. Because He paid for my sins, He could offer free pardon for all who would receive it. And so the two go together. The reality is, people, all sin will be judged someday. God is a righteous judge. He will not let sin go unpunished. He doesn't just laugh off evil. Every evil, every injustice, every violation, every, every rape, every robbery, every murder, every lie will be judged someday. The question is, how will it be judged? Either the sinner will be judged by having his sin put upon Christ, or the sinner will bear his sin to hell himself and be judged there. And the question is, what do we do with Christ? Will my sin be taken upon Christ and I be forgiven? Or will I bear it myself and just have that load bear me down into the pit forever? Which one will it be? And so because of Jesus, God can offer forgiveness. So what does that mean for us practically? Well, it means we can be forgiven. (laughs) That's the great news. Do you need to be forgiven? There's forgiveness with Christ. It doesn't matter what it is. No matter how bad it is, Christ's salvation and forgiveness is greater than whatever it is you've done or whoever you've been. There is forgiveness through Christ. And Christ's forgiveness is so great, it's instantaneous. Isn't that wonderful? If you repent and turn to Christ, you're saved. I love what Basil said. He goes, the first day of obedience, God started working again. That's how it is with the Lord. You turn to the Lord and you're forgiven. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to say Hail Marys and Our Fathers. You don't have to come and suffer through 20 Jeremy sermons. Okay? You don't have to take bricks and put them on your back and walk up and down the steps of the church 20 times to pay off your sins. You can't do it that way. Sins are not like calories. You don't work them off through doing good deeds. There's only one way to have our sins forgiven. It's through the blood of Jesus. And He does it instantaneously. How long does it take to be forgiven of your sins? Well, let me ask. How long does it take to believe? I don't know, you just believe. Right. (laughs) If by faith you believe in Christ, you're saved. It's not a process, it's an event, it's a moment. Justification is instantaneous upon faith in Christ and we're standing righteous with God. But not only that, not only is it an instantaneous forgiveness, it's a comprehensive forgiveness. He forgives everything. Past, present, future. He knew what Peter was going to do to deny him and he told Peter he was going to do it and he forgave him anyway. And Peter still didn't. He was still forgiven. He knows all of our lives. And so the the blood of Christ is comprehensive. It's all powerful to forgive. And so if you need forgiveness, if you need to be right with God, it's so easy. You simply look to Christ. You humble yourself and you put your faith in Jesus. Now, let's go to the next step. What happens then when we've been forgiven by Christ? The answer is we now have the resources in Christ to forgive Anyone. Anything. We can draw upon what Christ has done for us, paid such a great debt, and what a small thing it is for me to forgive the petty little things in my life. Even the big injustices that have been done against me are are small 
compared to what was done to Christ. And so I can draw upon Christ to forgive. And I need to ask, I need to draw close to Jesus. And as Jesus' presence is more and more dominant in my life, I have the resources through the power of the Holy Spirit to do the impossible thing, which is to forgive. I believe forgiveness is impossible to truly forgive unless the Holy Spirit empowers you to do it. Forgiveness is a gift from God, both to us and through us. And so we need the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. I read a story about Billy Graham. He was uh, preaching and there was some guy who was saying all these bad things about him and really, you know, tearing him down. And and it it was starting to get to Billy. Billy said, I started feeling resentment because of it. And he thought, you know, how can I go out and preach salvation to people if I'm full of resentment myself? And so one afternoon, the story goes, he got on his knees and he said, Lord, I'm not going to get up from my knees praying until you enable me to love this person from my heart. And so he got on his knees and he started praying and just asking God to give him love in place of resentment and bitterness. And he prayed and prayed and prayed until finally, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, he got his blessing. And sometimes that's what it takes to really forgive. You have to just pray for the Holy Spirit's power. And then you'll forgive and then the next day you'll feel resentful again so you do it again. You just have to stay at it. It's a spiritual war. Waging the war of forgiveness is very strenuous sometimes. But God can teach us and release us from that resentment and that bitterness and put the person in His hands. Let him go and give him to God. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness does not mean that we're perfectly reconciled with everybody who's hurt us instantly. That's a process. That's trust. That has to be built from the other side. That that bridge has got to come. But we can still forgive and still release and be free ourselves. And as I said, forgiveness is not an option for Christians. This is to follow Christ. We must take up a cross, deny ourselves, and release others. So who do you need to forgive today? Who do you still have a... When you think of that person. Who do you need to start up learning how to forgive and let go? God has the resources to enable you to forgive who that is. He has the resources. There's a chapel in England, an old cathedral, uh, called Coventry Cathedral in Coventry, England. And it was built around, uh, sometime around 1000 A.D., so it was 10th century A.D. And this cathedral uh, stood for centuries. It even survived uh, the 16th century when Cromwell's army took over England and they burned and destroyed a lot of the, the Catholic cathedrals because of some political things. This cathedral was protected. And so it even survived Cromwell's purge. And it was finally destroyed, though, in, in the 1900s, in the 20th century. It was destroyed during World War II. The Luftwaffe flew in, and they decided to bomb Coventry back to the Stone Age. And they used incendiary bombs, and they obliterated the whole town, and they obliterated the cathedral. And the next day, you know, the people started coming back into town, and they came out of their bomb shelters, and there was their beloved cathedral that had stood for 900 years, just reduced to rubble and burning things, and, you know, a couple walls sort of standing. And as they walked around the rubble looking at it, one of the the members of the church saw two medieval beams that had been part way back, beams in the roof that had fallen down, and they had fallen in the shape of a cross. And they were so struck by that that they bound it together as a cross, and they took it and they put it there in the rubble. And they built an altar of rubble in front of it. And somebody on the wall behind the cross wrote the words, Father, forgive. 
And the church made a decision that they were going to respond by forgiving and with grace rather than with the anger that they probably justifiably could have felt for having their whole village obliterated by the enemy. And I thought, you know, what a picture that is of the power of God's forgiveness. That no matter how bombed out our lives are, no matter how burned we've been, no matter how we've been destroyed, whether our own sins or the sins of others, we can always, at any moment, raise up the cross and look to Christ for our forgiveness and look to His power to forgive others and put that cross in the center of the rubble and write, Father, forgive and learn to walk in the way of the cross. And they rebuilt the the chapel. And God can rebuild our lives too. Let's pray.